especially here in our church and part, maybe part of the Southern Baptist churches, uh, we, uh, we try and, you know, t- do the Lord's Supper as often as we, as we can or as often as we do it. So we usually end up about once a quarter. Uh, we joke and say, uh, it's, it's the first Sunday after the fifth Sunday because that's biblical. It's not biblical. Um, that's just kind of how we have, have traditionally set up to, um, to do this. And I know you used to do it at a different time before and, and whatnot, but it's not commanded uh, on how often necessarily should we take part in it, but it is commanded about what our heart should be, uh, uh, what our heart should be focused upon, what our mind should be focused upon, uh, what we are, what we're actually taking, taking part in. So, um, so we, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment. And just to kind of put this out there, um, we celebrate together as believers in Jesus who have followed through in baptism. Uh, and, and we take part in that together as a, a, as a moment of celebration, as a solemn reminder of what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. So um, during the sermon time, we're going to um, preach on, uh, talk about love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But before you get to chapter 13, you have to get to chapter 11, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment in regards to the Lord's Supper. Let me read this to you, though. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, it's important for us to remember what Christ has done for us and why. We enter into a solemn celebration of Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection. It's important for the body of Christ to constantly be reminded of the legacy that Christ has left for us, of the life that he has left for us. Taking part in the Lord's Supper assists the follower of Jesus to remember what Christ has done and is doing and will do for his disciples. However, we cannot treat this remembrance as some nostalgic experience that we once had. The definition of nostalgic is a pleasure or sadness that is caused by remembering something from the past and wishing that you could experience it again. We get caught up a lot as followers of Jesus. We get caught up in the experience. I wish I could just have this feeling again. If I could have this one feeling over and over again, then I'm sure my relationship with Jesus would be so, it would be flowing, it would be be moving forward. I would be being transformed into the likeness of Jesus if I just felt this way. As we're talking about slowing down during the sermon time, we're talking about a consistency in being a disciple of Jesus, about a long-suffering, about a steadfastness. Uh, Eugene Peterson says a stick-to-itiveness, this consistency as a follower of Jesus. We're not uh, taking breaks from it and coming back to it on Sunday or coming back to it once a quarter, but we're being reminded daily, a consistency in our relationship with Jesus. So we're not looking for a nostalgic feeling, but we're actually talking about something that, that truly happened. Far too often we consume our lives with trying to recreate nostalgic experience. We base many of our daily decisions based on feelings we once had instead of concrete events that God's word guarantees. He is the way, the truth, the life. Those are concrete, they're firm foundation. Building your life upon Christ, the chief cornerstone, uh, being built up upon him, something that is firm, something that's not moving, something that is steadfast, that endures for forever. So taking part in the Lord's Supper is not about necessarily remembering a feeling, but instead it's remembering an actual event in history, a new covenant that was formed for our sake. A new contract that Christ made for us uh, is giving us so that we can have this right relationship with the Father. And the foundation of the Lord's Supper is not, is not just remembering, but it is a- remembering an actual event. Not imagining or dreaming or channeling your inner spirit or your inner thoughts or listening closely, uh, but we're actually thinking about or remembering a historical event, 
a moment that has changed all of history. I mean, you think about just this past week of the great things that you accomplished. Or maybe you don't think about just this past week, but the past month or the past years of your life and the great things that you accomplished. We talked about this in Sunday school a little bit. And how we often minimize the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, like, uh, like particularly when we have a sickness and we say uh, uh, the greatest need at this moment is to be healed of cancer. But what if the cancer is sin? Then the greatest need is to be healed of their sin, to be remo- for sin to be removed. And no doctor can do that. Only Christ can do that. And that's what we're celebrating. Christ's broken bread, his, his blood shed for us, the sacrifice that he made for us so that we can have a right relationship with Jesus. So as depressing as this sounds, anything that you accomplish does not ever, will not ever compare to what Christ has already done. The completed work of Christ is greater than anything that we'll ever accomplish as an individual or as a body of, as the body of Christ. What Christ has done for us is so much greater than anything else we will, we will do. So that's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. Christ's death, his burial. And even in retrospect, we're, we're celebrating his resurrection, his conquering of the grave, of the grave and conquering of sins. We're remembering an actual event. Jesus, he, see, he lived and he continues to live. He had and has a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that actually did bleed. He died publicly on a cross in the place of sinners, not because he needed to die for his sins, but because we needed him to die for our sins. I'm almost sounding like a preacher, Gary. So that anyone who believes on him might be rescued from not necessarily just their sin, but also be rescued from the wrath of God because you cannot and I cannot handle that. And so we celebrate together. We celebrate a solemn celebration, if you want to call it that. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. And so because of that, we don't enter it lightly. We don't enter into it unadvisably. We don't enter into it just like, oh, it's bread and it's good bread and, and it's good juice and oh, it's just another, another time. Like I had a, a college student in Albuquerque, he would joke after every Lord's Supper, well, I'm not full, I'm still not full, I'm still hungry. That's not how it works. It's not a moment of, of, uh, of comedy, a, a moment of, but instead it's a moment of seriousness. So here's what happens uh, when Paul has to write a letter to the church in Corinth. He says this in chapter 11. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because, you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He says in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And whoever therefore eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'd like to take a moment. I'm going to lead you in prayer. And then some moment of silence as we slow down, as you examine, most importantly, what Christ has done for you, what he is doing for you, what he's going to do for you. And then in that, this is what happens in my own life, conviction happens. Psalm 119.37 happens. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Let me, look my, let me set my gaze upon Christ and Christ alone. Let me continue to feel this conviction and repent of the sin that I'm in or that I have committed and repent of that and confess that before you and acknowledge and remember what you have done, the completed work that you've done for me. Jesus in my place, clothing me with his righteousness. So I want you to do that too. Examine yourself. Think about what Christ has done for you. Think about the sin that you may, that you may have. Uh, confess that before the Lord. Repent of that. And then let's celebrate together the Lord's Supper. I'm going to open us in prayer, give you some silent time, and then, um, and then close us and then lead the rest of the Lord's Supper time together. Lord Jesus, we know that you're worthy of all our moments. We know that we should be constantly being reminded of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do. But would you in this moment despite who I am or anyone else in this room, would you in this moment convict us, make your presence known to us? God, lead us to repentance. Lead us to seriousness so we understand how incredible you are as our Savior. Jesus, as we enter into this time where we celebrate your broken, your broken body, your blood shed for us so that we could be clothed in your righteousness, God, help us to maybe just for a moment experience some of the weight of sin, of our own sin, so we can truly celebrate what you've done for us. As we break bread and as we drink this juice, Lord, help us to focus our heart and our minds, our souls upon you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask our deacons to come up who are helping serve. And as they're making their way forward, what we traditionally do here is we'll pass out the bread. And um, then we'll eat the bread uh, after a time of scripture and, and prayer. And we'll eat the bread together. And then we'll pass out the juice, read scripture pray and then drink the juice together. So let me read to you from Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 14 through 23, and it says this, And when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of, of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we'll pass out the bread. And after we pass out the bread, the deacons will come back up to the front. We'll read scripture, we'll pray, then we'll eat the bread together. Luke 22:19 says this, And he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, we'll pass out these uh, juice cups, and then the deacons will make their way back to the front. We'll read some scripture, we'll pray, then we'll drink the cup together. And verse 20 says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, 
This is the cup that is poured out for you, and this is the new covenant in my blood. As we continue on, I want you to turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13. We've been talking about slowing down and um, <clears throat> trying to focus in on some most important things. So we talked about um, a few weeks ago just the, uh, the, nece the, the necessary movement for us to slow down and become in awe of Jesus particularly with uh, the verses out of Acts chapter 2. And then last week and the week before, we talked about just being simple, about looking for simple ways to slow down and to focus in on what's most important, simply stated, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, fellowship, prayer, really focusing on those things, denying self, taking up a cross, following Jesus, uh, looking to the things that are most important, uh, being like Mary instead of Martha, uh, not being distracted by the many tasks that are uh, that are out there to do, the many tasks that you have right now that you feel like you need to be accomplishing, but instead slowing down and worshiping Jesus, slowing down and being all in awe of Jesus, slowing down and looking towards what what's most important. Simply stated, what what is it that your life really does need to be to be about? And so the um, the second part of the the word slow there is the the letter L. And for a few weeks now ahead, we're going to talk about what biblical love looks like. So slowing down and taking some time to actually love your God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. What does it look like to to do those things? What does it look like to slow down and look for opportunities to worship Christ through the action or the verb of of love. So we we have to get to a, a real biblical description of what love looks like for us in order for us to to model that. And we talked about just a few weeks ago, back in June, we talked about that um, that it's important for the church to seek unity through love, for us to to be modeling love to one another. Uh, it's a, it's the, um, the the description of how do you define a follower of Jesus? And, and Jesus said, "You will know that they are my disciples by the way that they they love one another." And so it's at the priority. It's at the top of the priority list as far as disciples of Christ should be concerned with. What is it that we should be trying to achieve today? Love for one another. Love for our God with everything that we are. Uh, love for our neighbor as we love as we love ourselves. And so. When we put that into action, uh, what does that look like? How do we define? What does love look like? How are you loving your neighbor? How are you loving yourself? How are you loving your spouse? How are you loving your coworker? How are you loving your teacher? How are you loving your students? Whatever the case may be, how are we putting this biblical definition or description of love, how do we put it into, into action? So we, we, we catch up with Paul as he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. 
If you remember back from Acts chapter 18, Paul planted this church in Corinth. Corinth is a major city. It has a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people in the city. He goes to Corinth and he plants this new church. He starts this new church in Corinth and then he spends about a year and a half there or so. And after he leaves, he begins hearing about the lack of consistency among the believers there at the church in Corinth. They got distracted by many things. And because they were followers of Jesus, uh, Paul was encouraging them to, to follow what Christ had really commanded them to do, to not be distracted by the, by the number of things that are out there, but instead uh, be focused upon what is what is most important. So begin hearing these reports about the church in Corinth, about what they were, uh, the traps that they were falling into, what was uh, defining their church. And really the, the book of, the book or the letter to the Corinthians here, in 1 Corinthians, the first letter, can be divided up into five specific things that they were really having struggles with. You begin the book with division. Some were following Apollos. Some were following Paul. And, and Paul wanted to make it clear. Quit being divided by that. Follow Jesus. Stop wrapping your life around uh, following someone on this earth. Instead, be focused upon following Jesus. And then the next part of the, of the letter focuses on sexual morality, which that's a weird, awkward word, so we won't talk about it today because it's kind of PG-13 and some of you are offended by that. Uh, then we move on to, there's this discussion about food and what, what food should we be eating and what food should we not be eating and how we should really handle that. And then what we're going to talk about today is what does the worship gathering look like? So chapters 11 through 14 really focus in on how should the worship gathering look like? When the believers come together, when they are focused upon and devoting themselves to uh, the church or the body, what should that look like? We mentioned to you last week, uh, what would it look like if the church focused upon the gifts given by the Holy Spirit the gifts given by God, and acted within those gifts, abiding in Christ and allowing His power and His life to flow through you instead of trying to define ourselves by our own labels or our own programs or our own created things, what would the church look like if we acted as the body of Christ, trusting in the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ, trusting in the way, the truth, and the life, trusting that He's going to uh, build what He wants to build, where He wants to build it, when He wants to build it. So we already read to you um, from from this section about the worship gathering, uh, we read to you from chapter eleven concerning the Lord's Supper and how many of them had taken it away from what it was really supposed to be about. And then you get to chapter twelve and we have this long list and this discussion about spiritual gifts. And there's some there's some spiritual gifts in there that have caused great uh, bitterness and pain throughout church history. How do we handle these? When did they stop? Do they stop? Can all of them still be being used? Uh, what does it look like? And even in the church in Corinth, the same things are happening. And so Paul being uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and God breathing his word out through Paul uh, writes down this, these words concerning uh, spiritual gifts and he, he, he then follows it up after talking about spiritual gifts in the worship gathering he follows it up with chapter 13 where we meet up today and he says this in chapter 13 because apparently see uh, in the worship gathering many began focusing upon themselves they got so caught up in maybe distracted maybe moving forward they got caught up in what what their actions were and who they were and what they were able to do and able to accomplish and they forgot about something really really major and really important they really forgot about what is the core of the gospel and that is love they got distracted by, let me prove this, let me do this, let me show you this, and they forgot about the core of the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that 
that we were weak with sin, but just at the right time, God demonstrated his love for us and that he allowed his son Christ to die for us, demonstrating this magnificent love, this core of the gospel. And when we forget about that and become distracted by so many other things and speed up our life and focus in on so many other things, sometimes we need to slow down and remember the core of the gospel and remember the description of what love truly is and put that into action. This happened also in Revelation chapter 2 where a church is called out because they've lost their first love. But let's, let's meet up here with Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He's following up with chapter 12. He talked about speaking in tongues. He talked about speaking in uh, angelic languages. He, he talked about this. Oh, look how great I am. See that I can do these things. And he says, Paul says, let me remind you, even if you can speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. It's interesting that he chose those words, huh? Interesting that he, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down, you can do all those things, you have all those things, but without love you are, or he is. Nothing. And then verse 3 says this, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver it up, if I deliver up my body to be, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the core of the gospel and the core of the life of a follower of Jesus should be, should be love. And I think that we've become distracted. Maybe it's just me, and, and maybe you can just uh, pacify me for the next 10 or 15 minutes here and, and, and just resolve to, this guy has a lot of issues and he doesn't know what love is, so he's having to preach to himself a description of love. But I want to focus in on uh, the first three uh, words from uh, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is patient. This first description. Y you can have a, a number of things. Y you can have become a martyr and your body be burned. But if you don't have love, and in this particular case, patient love, then you've gained nothing. You could have all knowledge and all faith, and you could know all mysteries, and you could solve everything. But if you don't have a patient love, then you have nothing. What does it say? You could speak in tongues of men and of angels, and people be in awe of you. But if you don't have patient love, you are or have nothing. How many of you like to joke and say, I pray for patience, but then I immediately think, why did I do that? Because the Lord's going to teach me all about patience. How many of you say weekly or daily or hourly or by the minute, I just don't have patience today? Unless you're a doctor and you're really concerned that you don't have patience. Like, what's going on? Why is it that we're so consumed with it? Why is it that we love when someone shows us patience, but we cannot stand having to show patience to someone else? Let me just point out to you, uh, really in our world today, that we would say the opposite of love is hate. And so if you don't have a patient love, then you must be full of an impatient hate. And that's really convicting to my own life, if I put it in terms of my own family 
How often am I impatient? Don't ask my kids. Please do not ask my kids. Don't ask my spouse. Please do not ask my dog. How impatient am I daily? How am I reminded daily of the impatient hate that is rising up in me? For whatever reason, love is patient. It's an interesting word that, uh, that Paul used here uh, from, from the Holy Spirit, this word, Greek word of patience. It really means long-tempered or refusing to retaliate in anger or extending a long time or really the root of it is I suffer long or I have patience. A long-suffering. It's not the word that we love to choose when we talk about love. Can you imagine on the day of, of a marriage standing up and professing or confessing your love to the congregation for your bride or for your groom and I will have a suffering love for you. You're like, man, that guy, he's, he's starting off this marriage on the wrong foot. He's already saying that he's, he's going to suffer by the, by, the, by the very fact that he's married to this woman. No, love is patient. Love takes the opportunity daily to slow down. We don't live in that society anymore. We don't live in the slow society that we're willing to slow down and be patient. But I think that you can probably remember through your life, no matter even if you're eight years old, you, you probably can remember a time when someone was patient with you. When someone took the time, patiently sat with you, or patiently listened to you, or patiently handled your problem, whatever it was, and you probably said, thank you so much for your patience. Because we don't experience that often. School's about to start. and There's some teachers in this room and there's a teacher at my house. And you know how it is, teachers. Like it's Thursday and you've already been in school, you know, since Wednesday. And you're already thinking, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And then 20 years goes by and a student sees you and says, thank you for your patience with me. I see it in my kids now. You know, I recognize, like looking at my own kids and the example that they're giving me of how I was. And I just want to tell you, teacher, thank you for being patient with me. And they didn't say thank you for loving me, but you know, because you're a follower of Jesus, what you're putting into action. The description of biblical love says love is patient. When we say at our house things like, hey, daddy, I love you, or hey, son, or daughter, or wife, I love you, like, these are the things that come to my mind. When I say I love you, with all of that is the description from 1 Corinthians 13. So when I say I love you, like what I mean is I want to be patient with you. I want to be kind to you. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be envious. I don't want to boast. I don't want to be arrogant. These are the things that go along with that. It's not just a simple I love you. It's why the struggle with Peter and Jesus on the beach eating fish. Peter, do you love me? Well, well, yeah, but I love you in earthly terms. I can walk away from this. But when love is patient, when we slow down and we offer an agape, unconditional, patient, long-suffering love, we're modeling Jesus. You have to think back through how Christ has been patient with you. Psalm 103 is a great song, psalm and song uh, that we even sing, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. You, you're probably familiar with that. 
And there's a characteristic of God that the psalmist uh, touches on. He touches on that, that the Lord is patient, that he's long-suffering, that his love is steadfast, that it's not just a, a quick, uh, you know, like it's going to end, but instead it's a, it's a never-ending, long-suffering kind of love. A love that won't always allow, uh, you know, his wrath to, to, to be um, held back. At some point, his, his wrath will be poured out. But he has this long-suffering, patient kind of love. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. There's this church, another church that Paul dealt with. It's the church in Ephesus. And when John is on the island of Patmos and he's been exiled out there and he receives this vision from the Lord and he's old and many young people are thinking, yeah, he's senile, that's why he's seeing these things. We're trusting that the Lord gave him this vision, this revelation, and he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says this in verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Let's stop there for a moment. Christ is seeing the church's patient endurance. He's seeing their labor, their toil. He's seeing how they're, they're working through, they're, they're suffering through the moment. He sees that, uh, the, the second part of verse 2 says this, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Maybe this church has some guys who have the uh, the spiritual, or some ladies that have the spiritual gift of knowledge and understood, and the spiritual gift of discernment, and they were using these properly, and they were distinguishing between two spirits, and they saw evil. But then he says this. Here's the indictment. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this church seems to be very patient. But their patience is not out of love. It says this in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you have at first. It's the end of John. It's the final chapter of John where, like I mentioned earlier, where Peter and Christ are having this conversation. Not, Peter's not demonstrating a, a godly type of love or a Christ-like love, an agape type love, but instead he's modeling a, a human type of love, a love that comes from fake fruit being produced, not a love that's genuine in the same way. Well, I've been patient. Maybe you have a relationship. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's your neighbor. Well, I've been patient with them, and I've been patient with them, and I've been patient with them. Yeah, but do you have the love that Christ has called you to have? And that's really difficult. I don't have another answer for you. I don't, say, I don't have the uh, 10 steps to uh, how do you love the difficult person. You know, how do you uh, love the difficult person so they're not difficult anymore? I don't have the books because I don't believe in them that say uh, 10 ways to make your husband better just by, by loving them uh, patiently. No, we model our life after Christ. Christ shows steadfastness. He shows an enduring, long-suffering love for his people. And we put that into practice. I think if there was any indictment on my own life, it would be having a ton of knowledge, knowing so much about, um, about God and about Christ, things that I know, and sitting through many, many Bible studies and, and teaching even, yet abandoning what's most important and not having a descriptive, biblical a description of what love is, a love that is patient. Turn to Psalm 136.
What does patient love look like in all your relationships? Preacher, are you saying that I should just deal with people? Just say it is what it is or just be patient? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. That's what the Word of God says, to have a love that is patient because love is patient. Psalm 136 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It does not end. It is a patient, long-suffering love. It goes on forever. Give thanks to the Lord, or to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures. Catching the theme? Do you hear the theme? His love endures forever. It is a slow down, patient love. Verse 14, or verse 15. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to, is- to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Preacher, I hear you saying from Matthew 22 that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength and that I should love my neighbor as myself. But I don't have a biblical love. See, I'm impatient. People, people make me grow weary. It's people's fault. My neighbor's terrible. My own life is terrible. I'm full of self-pity sometimes. God, I'm, I'm at, I'm, I have a strange relationship even with you. I'm wondering why you're not answering the prayers that I've been praying. Why aren't you doing the things that I'm asking you to do? Maybe, just for a moment, when you have those thoughts and those questions, should I continue to love this person? Should I continue to wait patiently on the phone as I'm talking to some distant foreign person? Should I have patience even in that moment? If, if you are a follower of Jesus, then the answer is yes. 
because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I'm not talking about your love. I'm not talking about a, a love from R&B music or a love for bluegrass music. We're talking about a steadfast love that endures forever. A love that is godly. A love that is heavenly. A love that endures and bears all things. A love that is patient. So you'll have an opportunity this week to, um, to model that. And I hope, I'm hoping that Christ, I'm hoping Christ used you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for how incredible you are. God, we thank you that life is not about us. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, that you are such an incredible God to love us patiently, that you give us a steadfast love, a love that endures forever, that you model to us what love should be like. And God, without trying to manipulate folks, I'm just thinking my own self. I know that I would rather deal with my impatience and the effects of it than try and love patiently. So God, as you continue to convict me of that, God, I pray that you would empower me through your Holy Spirit to model a love that has been shown to me from you and even others upon this earth, a love that is patient. God, help us to slow down this week, to look for moments to love patiently, to model biblical love, and in so doing, worship you and you alone. God, thank you for being so great, so mighty. Thank you for giving us righteousness and redemption. And we pray that as we respond to you, God, that we would not, as Dub reminded me, not just receive, but we would receive what you've done for us, respond to it so that you would receive glory and honor in a way that shows your holiness and your purity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll have a time of response. We sing a song together. We stand. We, we sing together. Uh, a time for you to respond.